hello, hello. This is Rebecca Radio And Maggie Bacella. And this is Does It Get the Pass? A podcast where we arbitrarily decide whether rom-coms get the pass. This week, what we are deciding whether or not we'll get the pass is the 2007 film Music and Lyrics, starring uh, Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore, and directed by Mark Lawrence. This film is about a washed-up singer who is given a couple days to compose a chart-topping hit for an aspiring teen sensation. Though he's never written a decent lyric in his life, he sparks with an offbeat younger woman with a flair for words. Thank you, Letterboxd, again for the summary. Well, when we were right before we were getting into this, we were talking about how dismally low the average rating is for this movie is on Letterboxd, 3.1. I feel like people are not appreciating this movie enough. I definitely think this movie is like an underrated gem because when I bring it up to people, they're they've either never heard of it or they've only seen it once or twice. But like across the board, a good number of my my friends on Letterboxd have seen this movie. The average is a four star rating, if not higher. A couple people have given it a three and a half, but it's across the board with people I know, it's a it's a four or five star movie. I personally give it a four and a half star, leaning towards five because this is one of the first rom coms that I ever remember watching as a child. My mom raised me on rom-coms, very specifically any rom-coms that had either Colin Firth or Hugh Grant in them. So this was a major, major tentpole. This came out when I was nine-ish years old. So it came out right around the time when I was first starting to sort of understand film and really start to enjoy movies. So I think that's part of the reason why it hit so well. And also because Uh, What I would discover many, many years later is that this film is loosely based or loosely a parody of Wham!, the 80s music duo, which was uh, comprised of singer George Michael, who would go on to be a massive success in in his own solo career, and Andrew Ridgely, who retired soon after the band's dissolution in, I believe, about 1986. And as someone who came up on a lot of Wham!, my feelings on this movie and my stance on Andrew Ridgely was the hotter one in Wham feel like they have a direct connection. Yeah, I um, this was also a really big favorite of my mom's. And like usually when I tell people about this movie or say that it's my favorite rom-com, they've also never heard of it. But I do know that I have gotten several of my friends to watch it because of how much I've gushed about it. Um, I actually made one of my best like letterboxed friends through this movie Uh, I saw that she'd left a um review of it and I said like oh I'm actually writing um a whole like article about this and like why it's my favorite rom-com and everything and we exchanged like Instagram information we talk literally every single day and it's all because of this movie so this movie it really brings people together Um, but yeah, I remember when I was like stealing like my mom and dad's like iPods because I was seven when this movie came out. So just a little bit, definitely younger than you, um, definitely different perspective on the world, but I was listening to my mom and dad's iPods. This was on their iPods, the entire soundtrack. My mom loves the demo version of the song that Hugh Grant's Alex and Drew Barrymore's Sophie sing together, like the demo recording way of it. Way back into love, yeah. Yeah, way back into love. She loves it so much. And I I really do like love this movie. The like we said in the first episode, the rules for the pass are based off of this movie. Or at least my love for this movie. And um oh, there's really just no better rom com than this one. But I've also given it a four and a half stars because there are just a couple things that I'm like, I don't know if that holds up today still. Um Although I might be convinced by the end of this to give my next watch of it a five-star rating. 
Yeah, I think that this film is definitely very 2007, I think, conceptually, because to, to give a little bit more detailed a description of the plot, Hugh Grant plays Alex Fletcher, who is the the kind of second man in a 1980s pop group called Literally Pop. And he kind of is struggling to retain his relevancy. So he's hired to write a song for Cora Corman, who's played by Haley Bennett, wife of, you know, romantic drama king Joe Wright, who was recently in last year's Cyrano. She's playing this very much Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera parody singer. So it's very much rooted in the music of that point. But I wanted to, before we got too far, mm-hmm. note that the music in this film is written by the late Adam Schlesinger of Fountains oh, of Wayne, yeah. which is so insane to me because, I mean, I loved Stacey's mom growing up, but Fountains of Wayne and the sound of this movie are so very different that I'm not surprised that he could write a hit, but I am surprised that this caliber or this type of music came out of of someone that was working in a band like Fountains of Wayne. I don't know whether or not he's can write the this music so well because if it's out of love or if it's because he just knows the genre so well and it's a parody you mentioned like the wham connections i think i've also read that it's supposed to be kind of like duran duran too and as like i'm definitely more of a duran duran fan like the rio album scores right through every single one of the pop and like kind of 80s songs that you um hear in this um, movie and even like uh, Alex's like 90s music when he's done his solo thing sounds a lot like 90s Duran Duran specifically their um, 1991 self-titled uh, wedding album yeah so I think that clearly Adam Schlesinger really has a fondness for this genre or he's been able to recognize like oh there are very specific beats and things you have to do and so it's kind of easy to make this really cheesy 80s pop hit yeah, it's funny that you say that because I think I, I'm pretty sure that Duran Duran was more an influence on the sound than it was on the actual plot because mm-hmm. the plot does fairly closely parody exactly what happened with Wham! Because if you're not familiar, oh yeah, like I am with the intimate workings of 1980s pop music, uh, they when Wham! was founded, George Michael and Andrew Ridgely always knew it was going to be a temporary thing. Uh, Andrew Ridgely talks about this in his memoir, which is called Wham! George and Me. They knew it was going to have an endpoint because it's about their music is about the kind of joy of being young. So when they were starting to age out of it, they decided to end it. And that was kind of right when George Michael took off and where the different the difference in real life versus what this movie uh, what what the movie is is positing is that Alex is sort of trying to cling to his fame, cling to whatever relevancy he has left. Whereas Andrew Ridgely in real life did release a solo record after the dissolution of Wham. It didn't do well. And then he just sort of accepted, you know what? I'm happy for George. They were very, very close until the end of his life in 2016 and just kind of decided I'm going to back off. I'm going to take my royalties and I'm going to live my nice, comfy <laughs> life, which it's funny because as as an adult watching, like knowing that versus watching this movie and seeing how they've sort of played up the sort of drama of it all, because it does occur to me that this was made at a time when George Michael was still very, very much relevant in pop culture. He, you know, I, I'm not sure if he was putting out music in 2007, but, you know, Freedom 90 was barely, you know, 15 years in the past, which was his sort of huge hit of the 90s. So it was like, it's 
interesting watching it through that lens and not the le- my nostalgic lens, which is, you know, the, the lens of not having any knowledge of that, you know, whereas my mom did when she was showing it to me because my mom was obsessed with Wham! And my mother does agree with me that Andrew Ridgely was the hotter one in Wham! <laughs> We get it. We get it. This podcast is just for you to say which men you find super attractive, Maggie. Listen, they <laughs> also name drop Adam Ant in this movie. So yes, he's they in the, um, the yeah, no, Adam Ant, he's, I was going to literally mention this, that he's in the, um, uh, the title card for the, um, Battle of the 80s Has-Beens, which is the show that, um, Alex has asked if he wants to be on at the beginning of the movie. And he's trying to, like, avoid ever having to go on this, um, celebrity boxing show so yeah yeah I remember I saw that and I noticed it for the first time like on my rewatch yeah he's on the title card and then when he's watching when Alex is watching the sort of quote-unquote first episode of it much much later on I believe backstage uh when he's waiting for Cora they mention I think if they say something like next week Adamant versus Billy Idol and it's funny because Adamant did have a very very brief film career in the 90s including doing a rom-com so he is technically relevant to our podcast (laughs) Okay, you've you've snuck it in just this once. Maybe future future episode, perhaps. Future episode, I will make you watch the uh, the terrible vampire rom com written by the guy who wrote for Dark Shadows. But yeah, we we definitely have like a fondness for this movie, and it's like very much the, the encapsulation of like everything we love, like outside of rom coms and like including rom coms too. I literally could talk about this movie for ten thousand years. Like it's not even a joke. Yeah, I wanted to bring it back to the music for a little bit because yes, my do. first question for you is this film is filled with a lot of really memorable songs. You have Pop Goes My Heart, which opens the entire film. You have Way Back Into Love. You have all of Cora Corman's very <laughs> Britney Spears, very sexual songs. But for you, does this movie count as a musical? And if so, what makes a movie a musical? Because it these songs are all diegetic, meaning that they the audience or the the characters in this film are aware that these songs are happening. They're happening as performances within the film, whereas non-diegetic is the kind of thing you would see in a Disney movie where everybody just breaks out into song and, and every uh, everybody accepts that as, as socially acceptable. So to you, is this movie a musical? Like, does it have enough music to be considered a musical? You are actually bringing up something that I've been thinking for literally half my life it is shocking to me that nobody has tried to make this movie into a musical so let me let me just get into my full response to this question one I do not think that this movie is a musical like a musical is very much the non-diegetic people are breaking out into song and dance that is what a musical is that that's just the genre convention because then we can say that every Marvel movie is like a musical too at that point because of how many like songs they have and um, things like that. So this movie is not a musical. However, what I think lends it to being a musical is that the songs they're writing are all related back to the plot. And I actually had one of the, that was like one of my questions that I had written down for you about this music um, in the movie. I think that every single song in this movie relates back to what the characters are going through in that specific moment. And specifically um, dance with me tonight is the song that I always think of being like, how the hell is this movie not a musical yet? Because obviously Alex has, it's a song from his solo album. He's written it years before he's ever met Sophie. But the first time we hear it in the movie is after he has this kind of like shitty show at the Adventureland uh, theme park, which is also 
um, basis of a rom-com starring Kristen Stewart. <laughs> Which like, was shot near me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so he's at Adventureland and he has this really shitty show. And Sophie is telling him like, no, your music matters. It's making people happy. It's making me happy. You should go out there and do one more. And so he decides to do uh, Dance With Me Tonight. And the lyrics of it just absolutely relate back to everything he's going through with Sophie and how he just wants to be with her and wants to, you know, dance with her tonight, whatever. And um, it is so perfect. I, oh my God, I love that song. It's probably my favorite song from the entire movie hands down. Sorry, I had to gush about that. It's funny because that's not one of the songs that I revisit a lot. I revisit, you know, as as I'm sure most people do, Pop Goes My Heart, but rewatching this film last week with my mother who who showed this movie to me, that was one of the ones I think that stuck out more to me. I think more of the songs have stuck out more on this watch when I was intentionally paying attention to them and and thinking about this film as what you, what you were saying, this could very easily be adapted. I think similarly in, in even probably even better than the recent stage adaptation of Almost Famous, which took a bunch of, you know, 70s rock songs and, mm-hmm. and put them on stage and put that film on stage. This is kind of built for that because it are, it also has enough songs to be a musical because I think oh, yeah. when they when they transfer Disney films to stage or, or, or films with a couple of songs to stage, they're always adding other music in there that feels like it doesn't fit, but even stuff that you're just hearing in the background. Like I, I believe uh, it's, is it called enter booty town? Cause I'm probably saying it oh wrong. Oh my God. I <laughs> find myself singing entering booty town, like just around my apartment. Cause that's one of Cora's songs that she sings. It's like entering booty town. So <laughs> shake your booty now. Cause like uh, your booty is the way into his heart. I think those are the, the full lyrics. I, her songs are just so classic, like early 2000s. Like, like we mentioned, um, Christina Aguilera, I think specifically. She also name drops Shakira. Yeah, entering Booty Town is hilarious. Although I am quite fond of Voodoo's Delight. Like, I actually I think that is one of the different songs in my head for days. Specifically that beginning part where the, the like Shanti Shanti part, like the beginning mm-hmm. part of the melody. I've had it in my head for days and I like even those songs, which you only really kind of half hear, you don't ever see a full, like you see a full performance of Paco's my heart. You see a full performance of way back into love, or at least the, uh, the final version. Mm-hmm. You don't get really a full performance of any of chorus songs, but you could very easily translate that to stage to having these full big numbers, especially when you get to the end and they're performing at Madison square garden. And she has that giant, you know, these giant, very, uh, East Asian inspired stage decorations. You could turn that into a big okay, musical so number. Fun fact, the album has the full versions of all of her songs. Yes. Yeah. So they're yeah, already written. So, it's not like they only wrote part of them. So they have yeah. the ability to transfer these to stage. So yeah, I now I'm not going to be able to stop thinking about that. I need that to be financed. But if they were to adapt it for the stage, who would you want to play Alex and Sophie though? Hey, well, oh my God, I don't know any like older actor like uh, stage actors but I have a feeling that obviously plays take a long time to get financed written rehearsed and everything I would love to see Aaron Tivet as Alex that's what I was thinking (laughs) I have no idea who would be Sophie I was a Hamilton girly back in the day so maybe Philippa Sue or Jasmine Safis Jones could be his Sophie but um because she is um significantly younger than him I think she's about like 15 years younger than him in the yeah, movie, I, I believe I did the math. It was it what? Yeah, it was 15 years when they shot it. Yeah, so I could 
easily see one of the um, women from Hamilton um, being his Sophie in that, you know, leading cast. But yeah, um, I I love the music from this movie. I think that every song for this movie is perfect. And the only song I wish that we got like more of was Love Autopsy. The little ditty he writes on the, the piano the based off dumbass, of like. Yeah. I can't even remember how it goes. I remember the like piano part that he plays. I do not remember the lyrics, but it's one it's one of those things that this movie is supposed to be proving that that Alex Fletcher cannot write a lyric. Like he all he co-wrote all of his pop songs with his partner whose name I am forgetting. But Sophie comes along and, and writes his his lyrics for him. But I to to connect to that. I cannot remember. Is it Don't Write Me Off, the one that he sings at Madison Square Garden oh. just on the piano where he writes his own lyrics? It's so silly. It's so goofy. But that that's one of those songs that is definitely like built for a musical because it's so yes. very much just kind of expressing everything. It's kind of not a deus ex machina, but it's kind of like the mo- like you need that resolution speech and mm-hmm. they kind of circumvent him having to do the big grand gesture or it is a big grand gesture but having to do the big grand speech by putting it in a song which I think yeah and Hugh Grant's an amazing singer by the way like I don't uh-huh. think people give him credit for that I oh my god I love that song so much I'm gonna say that about every single song but only because I think that the music in this movie it's truly making this movie what it is it's it is don't write me off just yet oh my god that that one line it's like I think it's after the second verse going into the chorus it's um and though I know I've already blown more chances than anyone should ever get um something something don't write me off just yet oh my god dude it's gonna put me in the ground that line will put me in the ground see the one that sticks in my head is the one despite the fact that you've killed all my plans (laughs) that's the one that sticks in my head and I think it's just because it's so endearing but I wanted to before I forget talk a little bit about Hugh Grant as a rom-com lead because obviously if you know anything about rom-coms Hugh Grant and Drew Barrymore are are rom-com royalty just to name a couple of the movies that they've done Hugh Grant with Richard Curtis alone did Four Weddings and a Funeral, Love Actually, and Notting Hill. He's done Two Weeks Notice, he did two Bridget Jones movies, you know, Drew Barrymore's done Ever After, The Wedding Singer, Never Been Kissed, Fifty First Dates. So they are rom-com royalty, but it is, it's very interesting to me, Alex as a character, because all of the Richard Curtis films that Hugh Grant did, he was very much this sort of like waifish kind of, basically a stand-in for Richard Curtis. He was very sort of meek, very quiet. And I think music and lyrics does really sort of start to represent a point where Hugh Grant, he reached a point in his career where he really wasn't interested in doing rom-coms anymore. He he's said in the past that he really didn't, like, didn't intend to end up doing rom-coms. And Alex kind of serves as a turning point in his career where he's playing these characters now that he's, A, taking just for shits and giggles because he plays sort of just off-the-cuff things. I mean, now you see Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Gentleman, Operation Fortune, the new Dungeons & Dragons movie where he's playing these characters that are really just kind of the sassy man in the background. But Alex kind of really feels like the first time that he went away from doing those really kind of wayfish roles into something that was a little more fun and jaded and, and interesting character-wise. And I'm reading a book right now for research for the pod called From Hollywood with Love by Scott Meslow, which chronicles kind of a loose history of the rom-com from when Harry met Sally to now. And there's a quote in there from Hugh Grant about his sort of history with rom-coms. And he says, I never thought 
I want to do a lot of rom-coms. I never had any particular interest in that genre. I'm amazed at how well they've stood the test of time in terms of people still wanting to see them. They're scattered all over cable, cable channels and streamers, so they must provide some service. But I think it's just that I got old and ugly and I'm not appropriate for romantic films anymore, which has been a great blessing. So he kind of seems pretty relieved that he's not doing those anymore. And I think Alex is very much a sort of representative middle point between the beginning of his career, which really he never intended to have an acting career to begin with. And now where he's just kind of, you know, getting pissed at the uh, like pissed drunk at the San Diego Comic-Con press tour for Dungeons and Dragons and just doing whatever the hell he wants yeah, I think that this role for him is so perfect. Like, it is so, like, this movie is so well cast that I almost can't imagine anyone else playing Alex and Sophie. And I think that, like, everything you've said about him getting older, the plot hinges on him being older and being washed up. And I think that, not to get too, like, metatextual with it, but I think that it is a reflection of, like, how he's feeling as an actor, and it and I think it helps deepen the performance even more, because mm -hmm. obviously, like, this character and him are kind of going through the same realizations about their career and where it's headed, about their identity, about getting older, too, and so I think that I really, really appreciate the movie for that. I just think that he's such a fabulous rom-com actor. I just recently watched Notting Hill for the first time. These two roles could not for be the more first different time? from each other. Yeah, I had never seen it. Oh it's my, my dad's favorite one, but I had never seen it. I, I could not tell you why. I just never had any care to. Although finding out that Reese Fawns was in it was really funny for me because uh, the lizard is my favorite Spider-Man villain. So it was Every time I see, I was just having this conversation. Every time I see Reese, see Reese Fons in a movie, I'm like, oh, it's the crazy roommate from Notting Hill. Like that's his, that's him in my brain. <laughs> yeah, no, I love Hugh Grant in this movie. I have admittedly not seen a lot of Drew Barrymore's rom-coms. I've seen 50 First Dates. And that was like one of the first rom-coms that I ever remember watching on my own. In this, he's so freaking good. And she's so cute too. Like I, I can't even, uh, I don't know. She's also like an English major. So she's kin. Uh, she and I are kin, um, but I think that she plays off of Hugh Grant really, really well, and they had such insane chemistry in this movie. Like, every scene with them just felt so endearing, and this rewatch, I saw myself just, like, smiling to myself, like, every time they had a cute scene. There's that one scene where they're leaving um, her sister's apartment after dinner, and um, they have their little, like, because they spent, like, 36 hours together at this point. They kiss... And then they try walking away, but they don't want to walk away. And they turn back to see each other at the same time. And they, the movie doesn't make a huge deal out of it without, like, the music or anything. But it's so cute. And you can tell just, like, how much they really do enjoy being in each other's presence. And ugh, someone shut me up. I'm going to keep talking about that. <laughs> no, I... Drew Barrymore in this, I think, more so than anything else I've ever seen her. And she really gets to shine here. Because I think Sophie is a character. And, and Alex, too, I think, from on both a narrative and a metatextual standpoint they get a little bit more depth I think than some rom-com characters mm -hmm. get because there's certain movies that I, I adore that do get the pass the characters don't get a whole ton of depth and I think Sophie specifically really gets to move past just the you know I was reading that from Hollywood with Love book today and and uh, Scott Meslow mentioned something about you know, certain rom-coms get trapped in this this kind of a certain idea of class with a heroine, which means they're all all working in either architecture journalism or architectural journalism. Like she <laughs> kind of moves outside of that. She's a little bit 
I wouldn't say like lower class, but you know, she, she works at a, her sister's sort of like movie equivalent of a Weight Watchers. And so she's, she's kind of more working class, more kind of Rose Tyler in that sense. She's a little, she's oh, got yeah. a little bit, she's a little bit more rough around the edges. And so I think she gets a little bit more depth in that sense. And then you get the whole Sally Michaels B plot, which is something that I want, really wanted to dig in and talk about because yes, that's it's it's a lot darker and a lot more intense than I think a lot of rom coms tend to go with either their B plots or their sort of like villain that they're trying to sort of stand mm-hmm. up to. Yeah, she definitely has one of the more like meaty backstories, and I think that Alex, to a certain extent, does too. Like he's washed up and he feels very personally hurt because the songs that he wrote with. I think his name is Colin. I think that's who the other character's name is, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, the songs he wrote with Colin were the ones that made Colin famous in his solo career. So he feels hurt, like, like really, like, heartbroken over this. And so I think that this movie does have a lot of meat on its bones in talking about, like, entertainment and academia and writing and, like, all of these, like, bigger things outside of just love and romance. And I think that this gets me to one of my questions. It's like, how does the concept of the movie encourage it to get the pass? Because they're writing a song together. And yes, it's kind of like a generic-ish pop song, but it's a pop song that wants them to like reveal their feelings. And obviously the act of writing itself for uh, fiction, music, anything, it's a very personal and intimate experience that requires the people involved to be collaborative and to openly say their feelings. So, like, I I think that the concept of the movie itself is really helpful for that. But I'd love to get your thoughts on it, too. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think writing together or doing anything creative together does encourage a certain amount of communication that is is heightened over working or just seeing or being around anybody else. Even something like Set It Up, where the two main love interests are sort of working together to accomplish something you know, with this, they are specifically trying to create something, which means they have to lay their understanding of life, the concept of how they understand writing, love, relationships, all of these things out on the table before they really even know each other. Because Alex Mm -hmm. does admittedly goad Sophie a little bit into working with him. You know, she comes over to water his plants and then she kind of starts spouting off lyrics and he decides, no, 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 come here, come here. Like, you you don't just walk away. (laughs) So it kind of, you know, he kind of goads her into it a little bit, but then their communication is so natural from that point on. And, and, you know, she walks into his life, you know, knowing like, oh, this is Alex Fletcher. Like I'm watering Alex Fletcher's plants. And they do, and Sophie is more than willing to like welcome him into her life because she brings him to dinner with her sister, who is this pop super fan played by Kristen Johnson, who's just doing the best, one of my favorite rom-com sidekick performances of all time because she remi- she reminds me of my mom and my aunt a lot. But she's <laughs> like ultimate fangirl, but she's in her like late 40s. So like there, there's an automatic sort of trust there. And I think this movie could have very easily... I think gone wrong because the there is a 15 year age gap. I believe at the time of filming, Hugh Grant was 47 and Drew Barrymore was 32. And I, I'm less bothered by that. I think because Drew Barrymore was in her her 30s by the time they shot this. Because I think if they did it now, yeah. it would be like they would have somebody my age. I just turned 25, and then somebody in their 40s, which would creep me out a little bit more. So you have this idea. They're they're already adults. So I think. This could have turned into a, a film that doesn't get the pass if that age gap had been handled wrong, if they had not been so clear in their communication from the beginning. I think this script, I think this the script knows and the, and the music knows that 
you have to be willing to communicate. You have to be willing to put everything on the table to create something meaningful with someone else. And I think that does really does facilitate it getting the pass. Yeah, I I think that them communicating with each other from the very beginning about even their own insecurities and anxieties, because Alex is insecure, like I can't write a song without Colin and all of my songs without Colin are flops. And then obviously Sophie was um, the whole Sally, Sally Michaels plot, if you're not aware, um, her writing professor and her had an affair when she was in school and um, the professor did not tell her he was married, wife came home, things went crazy. And then he wrote this whole book called um, Sally Michaels, basically saying that the Sophie character seduced him and wanted to use him to further her own writing career and ruined his life and everything, um, which is patently false. She was taken advantage of by this professor who saw her as young, impressionable, whatever. And they both talk about their insecurities and their anxieties about writing, about relationships, about their identities within the first 20 minutes of the movie, because this movie hits the ground running. Like they start writing the song pretty damn quick and they really can't, they can, literally cannot afford to not share these things about themselves and their perspectives on life and romance because then the song won't get written. And I think it's really, really fascinating that the more they talk about themselves, the quicker it is for them to write the song because yeah. they're stuck for like several, the whole first night they're stuck on what to do. And then after when the Sally Michaels things comes out and he kind of like makes a few jokes about him not being able to write without Colin that's when they start to actually pick up steam and write more of the lyrics, more of the melody. And it comes together in this perfect way because Corey accepts the song. So, yeah. yeah. And I think that the time crunch of this film does help because this film takes place over the course of like a week, maybe two weeks, because the the ultimatum that Alex is given is that he meets Cora Corman and she says, I want you to write me a song, but I need it by Friday. And I think he meets her on like a Monday. So he has mm -hmm. a very, very limited time crunch to do this. So, and it's, which sidebar, it's very funny to me that he and Sophie managed to record all of those parts for a demo in like an hour and still managed to make it to the <laughs> helicopter, but that's not my point. But I do, th I, I think the the time crunch of this like they can't afford to waffle they cannot afford to waste any time so the feelings have to come out immediately and this film is a tight 105 minutes so like hour 45 no. which we love we love a tight under two hour movie on does it get the pass but i think that time crunch really does help because when you get certain movies especially romantic dramas more than romantic comedies they this they have these meandering relationships that last months, years, decades, whatever, I think that can sort of make communication a little more difficult. But because they are under, Alex is under a time crunch when he meets Sophie. It's not like he even meets Sophie before he gets this offer. No, he meets Sophie after, or like, he sees her right after he gets this offer. So it's kind of, you know, it, the spark is kind of immediate. And I think that's a credit to the script writing here because they could have stretched the script out, but script out, but they didn't. And I, I love a tight script. I love a, a film or a TV show that happens over the course of, a, of just a couple days, because I think it gives you the opportunity to really peel in on like nuances as opposed to just the big broad strokes. Like you get these scenes, like Alex going to dinner with Sophie and her sister and him arguing with his manager, Brad Garrett, who there's a moment in the, I think it's, quite early in the film where Brad Garrett says, can I be honest with you? And Hugh Grant says, of course not. You're my manager. I'd have to fire you immediately. So you get those <laughs> teeny tiny little moments. And I think that crunching the story down into such a small frame, like time frame makes, makes it work a lot better. And I think also helps facilitate getting the pass. Yeah. I think that there's, 
a lot going on in this like really like crazy week that they're having for the most part. And um, they fall pretty fast. This movie does not get Maggie's um, the sub pass rules of they don't kiss until the end. They kiss about at the halfway point and have sex at the halfway point. But honestly, you don't even give a shit for this movie because I think that, you know, they've already pretty much laid out all their feelings and about how they feel right on the table before that. And then like their argument after the the whole like, you know, third act conflict is about them being a little too honest with each other. Um, it's nothing new that they haven't heard before. It's like, you know, something, it's part of their insecurities. And I think that it reflects like, you know, maybe something that goes on in an actual relationship where the conflicts are not because of these stupid, crazy um, deus ex machina plot things, but because of, you know, insecurities and anxieties about yourself and, you know, your career and things like that. Yeah, this does not get my my sub pass rule, which they don't get to kiss until the end, happy kissing ending, whatever. But I think similarly to uh, the first film we ever covered on this podcast, Plus One, which also has the characters get together at the halfway point. I think because I am so invested in the characters that I don't mind. And also the getting together is not this big sweeping thing. And then they have to figure out how to like, you know, because a lot of films the characters will get together at the halfway or maybe two thirds of the way through. And then the pacing drops off like hell and they have to figure out how to punch that back up to get to the end. And I think what this film does much like plus one is that it doesn't make them getting together a huge deal. It feels very natural. And it's also this very much like plus one, very sort of realistic thing. You know, I, I noted that Hugh Grant gets into fights in a lot of the rom-coms he's in. I was just thinking this is <laughs> a punchable looking this- guy. He's a punchable looking man. He gets his ass kicked by Colin Firth in Bridget Jones's Diary. He gets his ass kicked by Sloane Cates in this. Um, but the the moment when they kiss or when they really sort of realize their feelings for each other is after he's gotten his ass kicked by Sloane Cates and they're in his apartment and Sophie is icing his eye and she asks, does it feel better? And he said it would if it were on the right side. And then they kiss and they end up sleeping together. And my favorite part of that is that they wake up in the morning under like on his living room floor under his grand piano and his phone starts ringing and he gets up and just smacks his head off the piano. It's so good. And then like when he's on the phone with the manager, um, you know that Sophie wakes up because she also hits her head on the piano and makes the same like ow and whatever. Yeah, it's it's a really funny scene. And I think that it's like definitely underrated. And I know they used it in the trailers too, because I did go back and watch some of the trailers for this movie that are also super ridiculous and funny. Um, I really want to know why they chose or how they ended up sleeping under the piano. Like, at what point does that become a viable so, choice? How do you say, in the biz, we call this a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> it's a metaphor for how their relationship was forged over music and the piano. To be fair, um, I've ended up sleeping in some just a pipe. So, yeah. Listen, this movie, if you've not seen it, is like absolutely hilarious and I think that's it's one of the few rom-coms that leans I wouldn't say really hard into the comedy but does lean harder into the comedy than I think some do and I'm usually not a big fan of that like I you know people call some uh there's something about Mary a rom-com and I'm like mostly inclined to disagree with that because it's just like toilet humor but this film manages to be very funny and I think that's a credit to Hugh Grant as an actor, you know, he's always been, he's always had really, really great comedic timing. 
but to pitch something to you, this like stroke of a thought I had halfway through this movie watching it with my mom, I was like, this was made in like the early 2000s and I just had a vision of an alternate universe where they cast David Bowie in this movie because he was doing a lot of film around that time. (laughs) And then I was like, maybe that's just a labyrinth fan fiction that I started working on a long time ago, but I had like a stroke and I was like... If this movie had been like made with David Bowie, I think I would have just died on the spot. But I, I do think that you probably couldn't have cast anybody with Hugh Grant. I can't like even rom com bigger rom or big rom com leads of the two thousands that were contemporary to this movie. I don't think would have worked as well. I think he, the British humor, I think is very specific to Alex, and I don't think he would have worked as a character without it. Yeah, I like literally because I'm also thinking of the other queens of the rom-com like um, Reese Witherspoon and Sandra Bullock. And I just don't see them in this movie. I I literally cannot see them playing Sophie just in the same way I can't see anyone other than Hugh Grant playing this character of Alex. And uh, I don't know. Like I said, this movie is like kind of perfect. And I like refuse to take any criticism about this movie because it's so good and it makes me feel so good. And it's exactly like, everything I want to see in a rom-com like they're super open and honest with each other they're like so radical about having this kind of honesty because of the nature of their work and like the creative process also he defends her after only knowing her for a couple days and like with the whole Sloan Cates thing and it's just like I don't know I love that scene he has a punchable looking face which is probably why he gets into so many fights (laughs) but um I think that you know, Alex it seems to be like a really, really great guy and boyfriend for the most part. Obviously, we don't see what happens after they get back together, but I think that, you know, I think that they're one of the few rom com couples that could potentially last. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know if you've ever my next question for you. Do you think that they would last? I, was say, I don't know if you've ever seen that TikTok trend, which is people like giving their opinions on whether they think rom com couples would last huh? beyond the end of the movie. I think so. I think this film does set them up for success in some ways, because there are some films that like rom-coms that I love that I'm like, I don't think these people would last forever, like maybe a couple years. Like my hot take about Set It Up is I'm like, I adore that movie. I really genuinely don't think that those two would have lasted more than like a couple years beyond that movie. Like, but I do think that, and I also think it's a because of the fact that they're already older to begin with. We see very few romantic comedies where at least one, if not both of the leads are over 35, 40. Like Hugh Grant was pushing 50 when he made this movie. And there's a conversation to be had, you know, about age gaps between actors playing romantic interests in films in Hollywood. That is a, an epidemic. We know, you know, we know the whole thing with Leonardo DiCaprio, but there, there that's a different conversation to be had, but you don't get to see a ton of, romantic leads that are genuinely romantic that aren't playing this for laughs that are that age and do get to have the happy kissy ending even if it is with a character that's a little bit younger than them and I think again because this film addresses that addresses that age gap difference I think it sets itself up for success more so than if this had just been kind of if this had been a film if they had somehow taken the Sloan Cates b-plot made that into a film and given it a happy ending that shit a wouldn't get the pass and two would just be setting itself up for failure and they wouldn't have lasted two days beyond the end of the movie. I think this film, this film is very self-aware, both in, you know, what it's parodying, what the, what the music is saying. It, it really, it knows itself, it embraces itself. And I think part of that is probably a credit to 
the fact that this film did come out of Drew Barrymore's production company. So I'm sure that there was a little oh, bit more did? creative input in that sense than, you know, a traditional studio rom-com. I believe, I can't remember the name of her production company, but uh, sourcing from Hollywood with Love again, uh, they did note that this was one of the films that she produced uh, under her banner. That is amazing. You know what? I always knew that this one was from the female gaze, you guys. Like, <laughs> I I really do love um, the fact that she was so involved in this then. Oh, my gosh. Like, that makes me see the movie in a totally different light now and, like, really appreciate what it is way more. I, I absolutely, I love that. But I think that we, so we kind of touched on this, like, just a few minutes ago, but I would love to talk about their third act fight. Because, like, yes. the plus one third act fight, I love this third act fight. If you want to say anything about it before I like scream about it. I had a whole note in my in my extensive notes that I showed Rebecca before we started recording um, that I think that Alex's perspective during this fight, you know, is fairly realistic. This idea that like I love Sophie, but he he posits this idea that she is kind of hiding behind Sally Michaels because she is afraid to sort of. She, she kind of wears it as a mask so that she doesn't really have to feel things that she doesn't really have to make a name for mm-hmm. herself. And I think it, he says it with a lot of venom. He says it to be malicious. And I think, you know, that ine- inevitably was going to happen, but I think he's kind of correct in that sense. And I think it gives her this space to really think about herself. And as somebody who, you know, grew up and, and for a very, very long time was afraid to sort of kind of make moves and, and have that confidence to do things without worrying about what people are going to think. Like, I understand Sophie's perspective, but now as an adult who's been in therapy for several years, I'm like, no, Alec, what Alex is saying is making sense. And I'm glad that she didn't just, you know, throw a complete hissy fit about it and say like, oh, no, you're wrong. Yeah. And I think that like what prompts that is um, them doing, uh, pitching the, the demo to Cora because she comes back to them after an interview and says like, oh yeah, um, I want to make it in my own sound. So still keeping the lyrics, but she totally changes it up to her style. And it's a very like, what does she call it? Stevie and sticky. It's an orgasm set to music basically. Yeah. That's, that's what Sophie (laughs) says about it. Um, and, uh, she asks, how do you like it? And Sophie like leaves in the middle of, um, her performing it. And, um, Alex tries to get her back, um, and like to come back to the studio and talk to her and, She's all like, how could you let her do that? And she's like insulting three musical um, cultures all at once. And she's very, very upset that her vision and her artistic um, talents are not being taken seriously. And she's, but she's more offended that Alex won't stand up to Cora. There's also this other dimension of like Alex being super insecure because he thinks that pop music is just like silly. He's like, I write dessert and other pop artists like he says earlier on that pop music is really really good and better than any book you could ever write and I think I am inclined to agree because he uses the example of my girl which is yes such a good song um but he thinks that those other pop artists are dinner and he calls himself dessert he's like it's just silly and like kind of schmoopy but um she wants him to have more integrity in his music and so that's what starts the whole um argument about like you're hiding behind Sally Michaels and you need to grow up and um, start actually feeling things and being confident. They're not taking their own advice. Yeah. And I think that that's what makes this third act fight so realistic and so good. Yeah. Ugh. It's, it's yeah. very much do as I say, not as I do. And they're both being incredibly stubborn about it. And I think to your point about what he was saying about pop music being dinner, I think one of the big theses of this film that is not, a, that has nothing to do sort of with the romantic aspects of it is the idea that, things that are popular are good, actually, and that we should give them a certain amount of respect. And 
because I think there's a lot of, especially now with not only music from the 80s, you know, not only like looking at stuff like Wham and Depeche Mode and, you know, Madonna as less than, but also new artists like Olivia Rodrigo and, you know, anybody else that comes up in that same sort of sphere. There's a lot of talk in the music scene that that is less than, that that is somehow less artistically significant. And I think for a film made in 2007, when pop music was essentially kind of at its height for, or at least it was hitting a, a, a serious high. It was hitting I think, its you know. stride for sure. Like, yeah. I'm just thinking of all the artists who were really, really big at the time. And like, like I would have killed to go to a club between 2008 yeah. and 2013. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's this, it's like, you know, at a time when pop was coming, we were coming out of the 90s with, you know, grunge bands like Nirvana and, and Pearl Jam and all that stuff. And coming into an era where pop was really at its high. It's interesting that the, that a film really decided to say, no, things that are popular don't have less value just because a lot of people like them. In fact, maybe they have more value because they mean so much to so many people and they are able to touch so many people from different backgrounds on different continents, all of this stuff. And I think as somebody who grew up around a lot of 80s music and as somebody who is, you know, a fervent defender of, of you know, young pop stars now like Olivia Rodrigo, I think it's I think part of the reason why I love this movie so much, not only because it leans into the 80s nostalgia, but also kind of just wholeheartedly accepts, you know, the cheese and the camp of it all, because Re Rebecca and I are, are fervent defenders of, of, you know, camp is good, actually. And I think this film is not quite camp. I would not call music and lyrics camp. No, this film is far from camp. This movie is actually, like, good, you guys. <laughs> like Yeah, yeah. So it's not leaning into that, but it's saying... No, fuck off with your stupid, you know, elitist opinions. Let people like things, which as somebody who's been screaming that on Twitter for years, I appreciate this movie for doing. So thank you, Mark Lawrence. Yeah, I one of my um, my second to last review for this from last summer was uh, this movie's ultimate message of, quote unquote, things that are popular can be good actually is one y'all should take to heart. It's, it's absolutely true. I think that this movie really does go to show that um, popular is is good and it can be really good. And I think that even Cora accepts it at the end because she wants to make it in her style. She wants to make it steamy and sticky or an orgasm set to the Gandhi soundtrack. But, um, <laughs> but then when um, Alex says like, no, right, doing the song in this way is going to help me get Sophie back. And this kind of music with it's like very simple melody can also be popular, too. She accepts that. That's what makes her make the song like so traditional. Like I think it's just like the guitar and piano kind of mm -hmm. backing track in the end. Um, I think that's what, you know, she learns that too. And she's like, there are different kinds of pop music and it can be really beautiful and powerful. And I don't know. I think that everyone in this movie learns a good lesson by the end about honesty, about truth, about popular things and everything. And you mentioned camp just a minute ago too, but um. I'm def this is another, maybe for a more camp-leaning rom-com, but I'm going to argue that things that are uh, popular are popular because they're camp, potentially, because they commit to the bit so hard and it's something new and um, that you've never seen before. But different pod, different episode, but just had to throw that out there. Yeah, there, there are plenty of rom-coms, I think, that lean way harder into camp. My brain is going back to one we mentioned last week during our Ant-Man and the Wasp episode, Down With Love, which was directed by Peyton Reed. That, yes. I feel like, is full camp. Music and lyrics, not so much, but I think it's it's giving all the right messages. And I think it's a message that we could use, especially right now when the rom-com is 
on the rise again, but I think people are reticent to accept it because they want something that's a little either more serious or more high budget. Whereas we can have good things in, you know, the mid budget range that are just good and make you feel good. Cause frankly, I don't go to the movies to be sad. I saw call me by your name one time and said, well, fuck that. Meanwhile, I'm over here screaming, crying, clawing my skin off, tearing my hair out over uh, Brokeback Mountain and Portrait of the Lady on Fire, which are the best gay movies ever made. I don't care how sad they are. (laughs) Maggie and I have definitely very different opinions on, like, movies because I love tragedy. Like, for as much as I love rom-coms and talking about them, my one true love is always going to be a tragic tear-your-hair-out love story or just a tragic story in general. I, I fucking love those. Is there anything else that you wanted to say to sort of wrap things up? Because if we don't wrap up now, we will go on for another hour and a half. And I'm sure our listeners do not need that. (laughs) Well, we hit on the fight scene. We hit on like their inciting romantic moment. We talked about how beautiful the music is and how like fun the music is. I don't know. I'd love, I, I would ask everyone who's like never seen this movie or has only seen it maybe one or two times to go back and revisit it with the past in mind. And you'll definitely see like, why the past rules are the way they are because of this movie. Because like I said at the beginning, they are centered around the relationship presented to us in music and lyrics. Um, And I think that what Alex and Sophie are doing in their relationship and their honesty with each other is something that I wish we just saw more of in rom-coms in general. Um, because they do have miscommunications. They they like little minor things, but they miscommunicate like real people, not like rom-com characters. And like we've said before, like it's so rooted, I think, in reality of relationships and everything that just makes it such an enjoyable watch. And I could literally watch this movie a thousand times and never get bored. So <laughs> yeah, that's my take on it. Yeah, I, if a man is not willing to write me an entire song and perform it in front of Madison Square Garden, I don't want it. I, I don't want it. That's that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's so true, though. I, especially a song like that song, too. Um, yeah. Don't write me off just yet. Especially a song like that. Like, that is, like, such heartwarming song. She calls it, she calls it dinner at the end of the movie, and it's, like, the thing that he needed to hear and be confident about I don't know I I love them I'm obsessed with them and like Maggie said we'll continue to talk about this if we don't stop somewhere but um if you don't have any last things to say why don't you take us out yeah if you want to hear more of the conversation about music and lyrics which I'm sure we will be continuing on socials you can follow the podcast on Instagram Twitter and TikTok at get the pass pod and on letterboxd at the pass pod you can follow me on instagram at maggie rachel underscore spelled r-a-c-h-a-e-l on twitter at maggie underscore rachel and on tiktok at maggie rachel you can follow me on twitter at with a hero and on instagram at king of the chess people and next week i believe our episode is at midnight is that correct Yes, that is the 2023 rom-com At Midnight, directed by Jonah Feingold and starring Diego Boneda and Top Gun Mavericks' Monica Barbaro. So we'll see you next week. Oh, I wasn't gonna fall in love.